In this episode of Everything Hurts, we chat about how we come up with new ideas, why everyone seems to be trying to monetize their hobbies, and why it's so hard for most labs to have a singular focus of research. And before we begin, I'd also like to mention that we had some problems with James's mic, so the quality of his audio wasn't up to our usual standard. To make up for this, we've added one of our older bonus episodes at the end of this conventional episode. These bonus episodes are typically only made available for our Professor Fancy Pants Patreon patrons, but now you'll get to hear one. Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo. I'm here with James Heathers from Cypher Skin. James, do you remember your proposal back when we were PhD students that if you were able to take down a senior research with money, you should be able to take their research funding? <laughs> yeah, man, the Hunger Games. The, the hung- research Hunger Games. The Hunger Games. Well, we've had a similar proposal from friend of the show, Noah Haber, Who's um who's, who's the pro- full stats goblin? The stats goblin. He has proposed the the high some somewhat tongue in cheek, but somewhat half seriously, the Highlander program. In that, if you take down a study or if you point out a study's flaws, you will absorb all of its citations. Wow. Yeah. So this was more in the spirit of. Right now, there isn't that many. There, there should be a bounty program, yeah, because right now there isn't that many incentives to actually go through and check the veracity of published work. And obviously, work that gets cited more is work that's getting more attention. So there should be some sort of way that we could reward this sort of stuff. Um, we have spoken about this idea of a red team where a researcher puts their hand up to say, I want people to come and take a close look at my research. Uh, but that takes the actual research to say that. So I wanted to quickly talk about some possibilities for bounty programs. And one thing I thought about is when it comes to journals actually doing this, because journals want to be known as reputable outlets. I know, for instance, any... <laughs> <laughs> you don't think so? <laughs> Society journals. Go on. Okay, okay. Finish your little idea. Okay, so l- l- let's just say, <laughs> let's just say, for instance, any work right now that's coming out of the Medici journal, um, compared to other journals, I would bet the house that pay- that work there is much more likely to be more robust because everything's transparent, uh, because they have someone actually checking the code, uh, and uh, and stringent peer review, et cetera. So if a journal came, came out to say, hey, we're actually setting up a bounty program for our work in our journal, you, you will okay. get, you, you will get, you know, they, they, they set sort of you know, typos get like, you know, a, a dollar or whatever. Um, but more serious issues, basically, if you find a retractable error, you would get a thousand bucks. Yeah. Spring of nature, $13,100 per paper. They have they have a little bit of spare cash they can that, that they can splash around bounty program and they say that anyone that finds an error in the paper um, can get this reward. Not only does it motivate people to actually check stuff, it also motivates researchers to be a little bit more careful with their work. Thoughts, James, on a bounty program per journal? 
your sticking point is the difference between this is bad and this is an insufficient observation. So this has to be, it has to be some kind of screw up, yeah? And it has to be to the point where whatever you're dealing with, uh, it becomes insoluble. Like you use the wrong formula. Uh, for a conversation I had yesterday, you use a model where no matter what data you feed it, it's always going to find exactly the same result. So you turn wow. everything inside out. So, it, you, you know, it, it's so... It's some kind of process-driven inefficiency, right? Well, not inefficiency. Some process-driven fuck-up. That's, I mean, that determination's hard enough now. You add a bunch of money for the actual journal. I think what you're gonna, what you're proposing, is just gonna get us less things getting retracted. Why? Because it's gonna cost them money, Dan. Because you just put a financial incentive in there. And you're like, journals care about accuracy. When you say journals, do you mean the journal is a publication entity that's owned by a company who thinks it's an asset? Or do you mean the journal, the community of people organized around the editorial staff who are trying to publish, represent, and advance an academic area? The community. Okay, so they care about it. Then what you're saying is that they're going to go to the people who, who provide them with the the infrastructure to run their journal and go, hey, we're going to start throwing out pieces of your journal and now you have to pay these angry people on the internet. Of course, they're not going to be happy about it. Well, they're not going to be happy about it. You don't have any leverage. Look, I, I, I hate getting into the practicalities of an idea before we talk about whether or not it's good or bad. All you're going to do is, I mean, it, it's going to exacerbate something that happens now, which is basically uh, like, dear, dear critic, I have looked at all of the points you have made about this paper, which is built of spiders, and all of the numbers were not in Hindu-Arabic numerals, but some kind of space Sumerian, uh, which means that the authors can't add up. And they did, for instance, claim that all rabbits are brown and are also from Jupiter. However, we do not feel that the errors contained herein warrant a retraction. We have instead corrected it to say all rabbits are white, um, and put and put some of the numbers into hieroglyphs. We trust this has ameliorated your concerns. You're giving it. You, you, you're putting a, a money on the outcome. Yeah. Mm. The reason why red teaming is a better idea than that is red team is putting money on the process. During while you're doing it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now, now to give you your due, it's fucking funny. <laughs> <laughs> Look, <laughs> just just like uh, Noah's Noah's original uh, Highlander tweet. G'day, Noah, if you are if you are listening. Um, he's look, not, he's, he's got he's he's got he's got real things to do with his time. Like complain on an in, on a, a platform on the internet about incorrect statistics to an audience of dozens, <laughs> do, do, dozens of people. Look, we're not going to be talking about the uh, uh, the Highlander the approach. Highlander. <laughs> or the movie, or the movie. <laughs> I have never seen the movie. I just know, I, I know just know it from cultural references. That's it. I know there's a man. It's a in sword, a kilt. kilts and um, swords and death. Well, that and power narrows it down. That sounds like Braveheart. Yeah. Look, I want to talk about this idea of how do you get ideas for new stuff. We talk a lot about how do we test ideas. 
but not necessarily how we actually generate those ideas in the first place. And it's something, it's a question that I get occasionally asked as well, is that how do you get these ideas for new experiments, for for new papers, for new initiatives? So, James, I want to just, I can't believe I haven't actually asked this before. I don't think I have. How do you actually get ideas for new stuff that you're working on? For, for me? For me particularly? Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously it's a little bit different now where... Everything in a, everything in a company is is process driven. Like a lot of stuff is fit to task. Me having bright ideas a lot of the time is a collective distraction to everyone here because to do anything about them, uh, it doesn't generate valuable intellectual property. A lot of the time, it's just words on a page. Um, and I'm in a continual battle, as is everyone past a sort of certain level of decision making capacity at any organization, in a continual battle to keep my focus on the things that do need to be done. So, in the slightly more historical sense, um, I really, I really wish I had some kind of mechanistic thing to tell you. I mean, I have strong opinions on where other people do this, but they they appear to me a lot of the time reasonably unbidden. And in general, it is, I would say that if they do have a, a characterization, it is, an, an, unless it's something that's overarching, it's not immediately available for testing, but it's something within the sort of incremental scientific tradition, I would say that the ideas have three elements. We're going to use A to do B to see its effect on C. Now, in general, I would say one of those things you understand really well and it's generally uh, C or A. But a lot of the time for me, that would be a new method, uh, a new way of processing something uh, with, with its own implications, like an observation that's never been made before, um, and seeing how it fit into a different kind of strata of idea on the right-hand side. So um, you... That's that's the only characterization I think I can give it, really. Um, and of course, I mean the general frustration is a lot of the time, unless you become an academic fancy man. In my case, um, you don't have a lot of freedom outside of your PhD to be able to do that shit. So you're saying that you would read, for example, a method applied in a different space than you're working in, and then you would think about how to apply that method into what you're doing. Um. Yes, often, often, often it was uh, often it was method driven. At least it was for me. Um, it was it was generally it was generally method driven. It was generally uh, uh, the the juxtaposition between changing the method and the pathway to which it became meaningful, and how it interacted with a certain class of idea. That feels like a very prosaic thing to say, Dan. Like, how were you expecting to answer this question from your little nest of wizards? <laughs> I take a similar sort of approach. And one thing that's really surprised me is I've hated going to presentations which aren't directly relevant to what I'm studying because I'm thinking I could spend this time writing or doing some other stuff. 
but mm. there's yeah, been. Well, I mean, why would you why would you pay attention to your education? <laughs> uh, I mean, why, why why would you have external interests? Why not subserve the the, the entirety of your available thought um, for either the, the gastrointestinal habits of your children, presumably considering the ages that they are, or merely your job as an obedient worker within the knowledge infrastructure to continually produce more questionable stuff on the same topics? <laughs> I, I know, right? Why, why would you Why would you want to know other things? Why Why, why on earth? But. I found so many of the ideas that I've gotten for some of my recent research has been from, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to listen to this presentation. I can't see the direct relevance, but there might be some gold. And in a lot of circumstances, it has been where someone talks about a method and I'm like, I think I could apply that to my work. And it's opened up a lot of doors. So now I almost force myself to go to these presentations, which are peripheral and have some sort of tenuous link to what I'm doing, but no direct link. Even when I tell myself this is this, this is probably going to be a waste of time, more times that more times than not, it actually isn't. And I've picked up some really cool stuff. Right. So you're saying that's how you used to think, and then you've suddenly discovered that being exposed to new ideas is in fact valuable. Yeah. Which is a, probably a good in, a, 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 probably a good observation to get around in your mid thirties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and all of a sudden you. Man, my stimulus material for doing stuff like that is like I can't even sum up the constellation of lunatic bullshit I pump into my head in any given week. What sort of stuff? I'm curious. Um on YouTube, uh I, I watch a lot of stuff on mechanical and machine repair, um blacksmithing, uh tool breakdowns. Uh, explanations. I'm particularly fond of HVAC systems. Uh, I'll listen to a, a good few podcasts on uh, ventilation management. This is pre-COVID, by the way. It's just that someone explained to me once how complicated HVAC was, so I started to get interested in it. Um, besides, besides that, uh, some philosophy of the conscious, uh, consciousness theory of minds uh, kind of kind of stuff. Um, a lot, a lot of tool, a lot of tool things now, a lot of fabrication stuff. How is this made? How is it stuck together? Um, some, uh, like digital history going back to about 1980 and the sort of weird curlicues, as much weird internet as I can fit in. Um, like all of that, I'm continually consuming all of that all the time mixed in with whatever the fuck turns up on any given day. How do you fight? against this thing that a lot of people experience in that people feel like they have to monetize their hobby or monetize their interest. Oh, I'm doing this don't, thing. Don't. Yeah. But how, don't, how do you, don't, don't feel that way. How do, how, do I, how do I fight against it? Look, telling anyone how to feel is futile. Um, this, to me, it feels like the march of – it marches, uh, march through the ability to kind of underlie – Everything. See, the other thing is, is the, the idea that you can just click your fingers and monetize something. A lot of people are bad at what they do, and they and that is not a criticism. You sh- you should have the facility, you should have the space in which to potter the fuck around. Pottering. I mean, do you honestly do you honestly think I could put those like the the the, the ducting and the industrial control systems <laughs> into a building because I watched I literally watched a lot of stuff on how HVAC repair works 
No, because I fucking couldn't. Yes, I'm not trying to monetize my interest in that. It's so I know things about the world that we live in. It's why I pump shit in. I don't know if that qualifies as a hobby, but I suppose I've got other hobbies as well. Um, do I try and monetize them? No. I sell writing when I can be bothered when I get around to it, and that's not really a hobby. That's more a compulsion. Look, it comes, it comes from a space where it's, it's born of the kind of desperation that people don't have enough money to live in the first place and the idea that everything needs to fit into a framework where you're, you're exchanging money for goods and services even when you're supposed to be having what is literally defined as your time off from work. It's kind of the... Uh, I mean, it feels like a lot, a lot of people will tell you a lot of stuff about the predations of capitalism, but like the worst excesses of this to me feel like they feel dangerous. They feel like you're going to hollow out everything that you enjoy simply because it's fucking fun. When you get the idea of people, it's like, I'm going to go to a place and go for a walk. Uh, you, and, and I'm going to take photos of myself going for a walk and put them on the internet so I can sell the pants that I'm wearing. It's like, I, are you that small? Are you that much of an empty little wizard? Is that is that what that means to you? Is that you're 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 continually selling that you're a continual product? Just fucking. I mean, I understand it a lot more when you you, you know you've been priced out of a degree. You don't have any fucking options, and you want to get side shit going. I mean, people have done that for a fucking million years. It's, it, I, I think it's like things in Pompeii, like people doing side hustles on the side of the street and they're the guy's bread cart or he's, he's buying it over there for one fucking denarius or whatever and selling it over there for three and shit like that because it's closer to whatever. Street culture, um, city culture, urban life has always been built around trying to trying to find extra services. I mean, it starts off with them. Um, like kids, kids, kids walking around the neighborhood, set, setting up a table outside the house. I did that. It was a kid, but it was more about playing store than making money. Sure, you know. There's. Why did you bring this up in the, the context of academic? Because you knew you knew this was going to push a fucking button for me. No, but now we're here. No, but this is good because a lot of people, a lot of people are on salaries, PhD salaries that are very low. And opportunities. Yeah, and, for- I full, and I fully understand when you're in that position the idea that you want more money to support yourself and not just, oh, thank Christ, I can finally afford rent and ramen, but more kind of we live in an entire world full of uh, globalized products and some of them occasionally I find amusing. Yeah, I want a fucking dinosaur onesie. It's like just the money to be able to afford whimsy. Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely get that. But the whole idea that this is a necessary and laudable thing that should underlie every single other thing that you do, I think it's a fucking disgusting idea. And yeah. people who, who who look at that see the entire world through a transactive framework and absolutely nothing else. And that I question their ability to experience other emotions the same way that people who aren't fucked experience them. I wrote a great book on this recently called How to Do Nothing. It was excellent. <laughs> How to, do, how to do nothing by yourself with no one? Is that the one? <laughs> no. Uh, who's there's, a classic, the, um, there's a classic uh, children's book, Dan, that is just about wasting time and being a child. Uh, how to do nothing with no one alone by yourself or something like that. Here it is. How to do nothing by Jenny O'Dell resisting the attention economy. It was in my bookshelf right next to me. This was a really, really interesting book. Highly recommend. Okay. Yeah. Essentially, how, how to 
do nothing with nobody all alone by yourself. The kids book. That is, that is the that is the kids version of what you just said. It's very very old. Okay. Um, it was published. It was published in the fifties, but it's all about the amusing diversions of life and being a kid. Uh, teach you how to make a paper airplane, how to make a slingshot, and uh, you know the fun stuff that's illegal now. Make a, make a little court. That's not fucking illegal. Don't be ridiculous. Slingshot. Yeah. What? Okay, I know you'd live in a nanny state, but there's so much <laughs> nan. Uh, I don't. I don't think they're illegal. They're, they're very, very rarely is that fully. Pro- also, come on, Dan. It's the six-year-olds and shit. Yeah, yeah it's all. It's all good fun. Don't don't be such a fucking joyless prick. You got the entire rest of like talking about academic protest to be a joyless prick. In. Don't take it away from six-year-olds. If you're liking what you're hearing, there are a few ways that you can support the work that we do when everything hurts. First, you can throw some of your spare change to us each month. to be exact, and you'll get access to a bonus episode every single month. There's also a $1 tier that will get you access to the Everything Hurts newsletter and the occasional bonus episode. Second, we've got a merch store where we sell hoodies, shirts, and coffee mugs, which is our most popular thing that we sell, so you can tell everyone that you listen to the best science podcast in the world. Third, you can tell your friends about the show by sharing links to episodes on social media. James and I love seeing these posts. For links to our Patreon page and merch store, check out the show notes. Books is actually another thing where I get a lot of ideas from, and I get distracted very easily when it comes to reading papers online. Um, even when I tell myself I'm going to shut off the internet and read papers, it's very easy to fall down the reference rabbit hole where you see a reference and you're like, gee, that's interesting. And you know how it is, and you just keep going and going yeah. and going, which is why I really- That I agree with entirely. Yeah, yeah. And it's just, it's, it's crazy. Before you know it, you're, you're reading about mammary function in echidnas. It's it's just, you know, you're-, you're <laughs> I, I, always, I always end up in classical physiology in some particular piece of it that I've never read. Yeah. There's some, some shit circa like 1920 through 1970. Uh Reading, reading some paper where he's like, we're the first person to do this particular thing in the analog version. And I, I don't know why I have this weird, archaic feeling that somehow them doing it with a glass cylinder and uh, a, a glass cylinder and a measurement thing on a piece of paper is somehow much cooler than me doing it. <laughs> no, but it's cool because these were the... It, these were the first people to actually do this kind of stuff. I've been reading about the. the hi- I know it's I so cool. Know. I've been reading about it's, the history, I, yeah, the history of um of, of oxytocin research, and the sort of stuff in the twenties and thirties. The, <laughs> the sort of stuff in the twenties and thirties. It was like it was a home run after home run, and it almost feels like all the cool. It's basically all, all the low hanging fruit was discovered very early. But seeing all the stuff they were doing with like very sort of archaic equipment was it, it's fascinating. It's actually fascinating. Mm. Yeah, it is. Uh, it, it we we do not live in an age where it is easy to divorce yourself from the tools that you use to interrogate the world. This is why I was always so. I don't have a lot of like soft spots when it comes to research. But this is why I have a gigantic soft spot for Robert Provine and the 
the kind of what do you call it sidewalk neuroscience uh, street cognitive psychology I'm not sure it has some there's some nomenclature that just means we're going to study people let's look at people and here's here's some facets of basic human interaction that you probably never noticed and there was something simultaneously like interesting like many of the ideas felt like they had a real core but there's something very 19th century about it and the fact that it was still possible to do that felt, I mean, it made me feel like such a Luddite that I found it so attractive. But I think it's just because it's nice to feel excited about the things that are around you. The idea that you can look at a group of people across the road and they're interacting in a way. And it's forming a process that can be interrogated and, and understood. You- so the way that three people laugh together. I mean, there's, there's something I find endlessly charming about shit like that. But do you think that's what's behind the rush for people to adopt new methods? Uh, you know, obviously in, in the exploration age, people were just were just, just discovering or at least for their cultures, find, finding other, other places for the first time. So when new methods come out, mm. people are like, I can find new stuff based on this shiny new method. And we kind of laugh yeah. at people going, oh, you know, ev- everyone's doing this method and everyone's doing computational psychiatry now. Um, but it, it just feels like this kind of gold rush after gold rush. People people rush in, get all the early discoveries, and then on to, on to the next thing. That That's what it seems like, at least. Well, obviously, there's an element of ambulance chasing that comes with any given research agenda. Like when, you, when you pull money out of a system, when you pull resources out of a system, intelligent elements within that system will react in different ways. It's not driven by curiosity anymore. It's not driven by ideas that you've had that are deeply held convictions over years. It's driven by availability. So a lot of the time, is you, you try and shoehorn things that you already think, questions that you already have as sort of availabilities onto the opportunities that are available to you. But that's not an exercise in hypothesis generation, really. You're talking about something that's more local mm. than that. Well, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people do it exactly the same way that we've been talking about. But there is a certain class of popular book writing motherfucker who looks at basically everything like this as an immediate marketing opportunity. What two ideas do I wish to exist in association that I can exist myself in association to? And it's to further a, it's not really a scientific scheme as much as it is a marketing program for the fidelity of an idea. And hypotheses in that sense are that they're more, they're more facilitators of a branding exercise than they are a sensible way to pose the question. And the reason that those people thrive in general is because they're usually because they're very good at writing. They're very good at putting these ideas in order. They're very good at crafting a narrative around these kind of brand bricks that they've built that allow them to make progress over time. So that's why, I mean, that sounds extremely cynical of me, except I assure you that that is accurate. And I've occasionally met 
and talk to people who think about things in that way. Well, if we have these sort of associative ideas, it's going to sound cool like this. And if it sounds cool like this and we have access to all this other stuff and it fits with my second book and shit like that. They're not interested in, they're not interested in the world. They're interested in people's reactions to their observations as marketing objects. Now, there's a point in your life where you sort of shrug your shoulders and go, okay, well, these slippery, mendacious little fucks are always going to exist. So what are you going to do about it? So I don't think it's something I get upset about anymore. As much as it's very tiresome, it just makes you feel old when you see it for the 4,000th time. Um, that and I think the, the the publishing market in many respects has fragmented significantly now. So the big sort of book leading to speak a deal is in um uh is a little bit more of a constellation than it is a, a series of well defined bins at this point. So I think that there's uh I think that there's less scientists attempting to pursue that now. Uh, it's not really? You think so? No, I just, I, I, uh, I think, I think it's less of a. This, I think the market is a little bit too open for people to see like the top grifters and go, that's a good grift. I want a grift that's just like that, because there's um, there's your 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 access to the market to be able to do this in the first place is being like you're being perpetually undercut by other people's abilities to access the same opportunities as you. I don't know if I've explained that very well. Just say some words. I think that happens a lot in science, but it doesn't happen where people see two ideas and they're going, this can be a cool thing if we do it. What does happen, though, is somebody does a thing and they find some random association or some random effect (sighs) and go, cool, Mm -hmm here is a finding, then that thing becomes their thing and they keep going. So what you say is, basically, we have something that is extremely prospective that doesn't really have a hypothesis. We mash those together in an experimental observation and we look at the outcomes. So basically, the whole, the whole thing you just, you're saying is post hoc reasoning forms a different kind of categorical addressal of this environment and that a lot of a lot of shit is driven by that so you know basically like well let's let the observations take care of themselves and like the iraq war we will craft the facts around the narrative (laughs) yeah essentially and then their future work will be around uh finding ways to continue that narrative and then other research teams go this is a cool narrative i'm going to try that for myself so i think i think we're talking about the same thing, but I think you're starting with the seed. Yeah, exactly, exactly. The yeah. seed of what is eventually a marketing program. I'm talking about the process once it's already been begun. Because I accept everything that you just said as, I mean, it's that's reasonably inarguable now. Because you can you can see it sometimes uh, within someone's work, and we're like, oh, we mashed all this shit together. We seem to have found this thing, and it it, it works within this kind of context. And they're like, okay, I found the narrative that I will now deploy in the future work to look at X, Y, Z, something, something. 
Okay, well, uh, maybe that means that we're both cynical pieces of shit, Daniel. And it's probably your fault, seeing as this was your idea. So, you know, the world judges you. You know, now nowadays I'm less against this idea of... I used to think having papers with like four experiments was a bit silly, a bit daft. But now I'm coming more around to this idea because it is a way of one possible way of guarding against this post-hockery. You do it once, post-hockery, bam. But if you can do that again, then that is one potential defense against that. So I used to think it was a bit weird. You see it a lot in, in more sort of neuroscience papers where there's essentially six different experiments to say slightly different things, but they corroborate the larger story. And I think there should be more room for that when practical within psychology at least. I would I would like to see internal pre-registered elements within papers like that. What do you mean by internal? Once you've done something and it makes sense and you want to do a second observation, I feel like a very stringent level of oversight happening over pre-registered hypotheses within something like that that's in a narrative because it is perfectly possible to do 20 things and then p-hack the fuck out of six of them and turn them into a very compelling narrative because you took six observations. All you're doing then is is basically taken to the next level. You're going from playing checkers to playing chess with how you do this narrative association horseshit. That is... Um, however, what you're describing, obviously, there is a long tradition in a variety of areas of the social life, biological, etc. sciences of having stacked observations where you start with a phenomena that you might have noticed by a circumstance. Uh, and then you take a larger observation and then you, you look for a limit condition in one thing and then you check whether or not some other thing is relevant and you discard that. Um, there is, of course, within the social sciences, a long history of those papers. Where like, oh, we did nine experiments in a row. And it's very hard to say if they occurred in that order or if they were originally designed to make that sort of observation. Um, I, yeah, it's, it, it, it feels like a confidence trick if you do that badly. But if you do it well, I think there's a tremendous opportunity for other people to extend faith in your ideas. And as per usual, it comes down to research methodology, like so many other things. There is, I've read, some journals allow a two-step registered report where you have your initial experiment or your initial approach, and you essentially have two paths, kind of like choose your own adventure. If you get outcome A, then this is your pre-registration. If you have outcome B, then this is your pre-registration. So it essentially recognizes that a lot of research is sequential and you can't get to the final thing until you get to step A or step B or what have you. Hmm. Like okay. That. Yeah. Look, there's a, I, um, I, I think, I think there is a tremendous future in being able to do things like that. Um, especially look, if you, if you've got a multi-stage thing, if you've got like two initial experiments and then the ability to, to pre-register certain elements and then you're allowed to go uh, experimental after that. I mean, you're, you're describing a very managed process compared to write some shit down and have other people read it. But if you have important enough observations, see, that's the, that's the thing. If you have a great deal of faith, in what you're trying to observe. If you really know, if you know why, if you have a tremendous amount of control of your variables, if you, if, and you, you, you have faith in your experimental apparatus, 
and you understand the mechanics of the environment that you're taking these observations in. The idea that this stuff is particularly onerous really is flipped on its head and presented in terms of, if we do this exactly right, we're going to have the best fucking evidence. And it's going to be very well appreciated by the community of people who really know how this shit is put together. If it, yeah, if you're if you're a, a lot of it, oh, this is all these all these new ideas. It's all so much work. Um, it's work to help you provide strong empirical centers to the observations of shit that you say. That is important. Um, and you can, I mean, you see people. It's like we're absolutely certain. Well, we know this. We're going to pre-register the fuck out of it, and we're going to do exactly the way we said before, and then it's going to work. Yeah, that con that confidence, that confidence is built of, well, either self-delusion or a great deal of evidence-driven confidence. And you know, if it doesn't work, you can you can always just fill it up to the fact anyway, like a dodgy piece of shit. And I've seen people now. <laughs> I've seen people now. Don't that do that. Don't do that, kids. Do not do that. Don't do that. I've seen people now that everything, advocating- everything hurts. Everything hurts does not support your research misconduct. No, do not do that. I've seen people advocating that we need to have more stricter hypotheses within psychology, and in that sense, it's like, oh, Christ, yeah, yeah. So if if you're so confident about your finding, then you should be able yeah. to predict the effect size. Yeah, don't just say there's going to be an effect. Go, we predict this is going to be between point two or point three and having more stringent because if then if then if that yeah, hypothesis sure. is, is supported and in order well, to get that if if you have if you have woolly associative ideas that are basically just it's boxes and arrows mate. Like, boxes and arrows like, yeah it's, it's just you're just sort of smashing metaphors together idly in a sand pit you know if if you're doing that because yeah we we Obviously, we want that, but people have been complaining about the, the, the wooliness of the ability to access concepts through making basic experimental tasks given to partially attentive 19-year-olds for a fucking million years. Of, of what should these hypotheses be built? You know? Or, or here's a better one. You tell me about your work, now come up with two. <laughs> <laughs> You, 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 tell, you tell me a couple of those. We're going to run the risk. I don't know if we're doing this already. We're going to run the risk collectively and trying to re reform ourselves to fucking death. Like the thing that it, it, there's, there's all these ideas about what needs to happen next. And it, obviously, I'm extremely reform positive and have complained about pretty much every single aspect of everything to do with the pursuit of academic science. And I have no intention of stopping doing that. However, you've got to get to a point where what you want is answered by things like, well, we're going to need a different publication system. We're going to need more money. We're going to need a different way of how resources are dispersed throughout the entire academic commons. That's where you're going to end up, and you're going to have to do shit about that. You can't go back and go, okay, well... The, 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 the statistics are weak, the, the methods are weak, the hypotheses are weak, and we've got a whole process of like, what can we do better? I do not want to think that this is going to continue and there's going to be more fucking arguments about what happens within the process with not sufficient attention paid to the environment in which the process happens. 
That's because it's Honestly, hard to address, I, though. Well, of course it's fucking harder to address. <laughs> if you want something easy, there's a fucking million ways to have an easy life, Dan. This yeah. is the, it came up in this debate recently. Uh, there's, uh, there's, yes. I did a debate on the, uh, the, the, the 450 movement. Is that public somewhere? Of, the, the, oh, I, I, probably eventually. But look, the intellectual center of a lot of pushback against the idea that we should pay reviewers, not that we should pay them the amount of money that I want, the fact that they should be paid in the first place, which was a nasty little rhetorical trick that I think undid us. We lost, by the way, quite substantially. Um, I didn't want to argue about $450. I wanted to argue about the idea of pricing labor and downwards pressure on the fact that there's a million billion peer reviews and increasingly few people to do the fucking things in the first place. The quality's going down. They're almost impossible to get for some editors. And the, 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 one of the reasons the system is overheated is because so many of them are handed out to people who have what are bad white collar jobs. So, Basically, look, the, the intellectual center of the argument against this was it's hard. It's hard. It, w- it would be hard to put together the payment structure. Well, I mean, the response that you want to say that you can't in a debate because you know it's an ineffective rhetorical strategy is, well, yeah. Yeah, handing out 5 million payments globally, uh, regardless of visa conditions and people's ability to accept work and how the payment transfer is going to occur. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, it's easier than you think, because I don't think I was dealing with people who understood SaaS businesses very well right now. And global payments have come a long way in the last five to 10 years. It's really, really good now. There's so many good services to this. Um but it's if if you there's other places if you want an easy life. What did you think being a scientist was going to be? Simple? Yeah, of course it's of course it's fucking hard. Everything's hard. I mean, there's there's a lot of sh- a lot of shit that was easy. Um, so some look, some ideas are easy and the implementation is hard. Yeah, it's easy enough to prove at some point in time that putting lead in things that aren't fully developed gives them neurological damage and turns them into violent assholes. Yeah, that's easy enough to prove with enough sinkers from the hardware store and enough water bottles and enough little poor little rats. It's easy enough to prove. Yeah. And then you've got the entire globe where it's covered in fucking heavy metals where you have to do mitigation on all the soil or all the built environments or something else. There's always going to be a fucking implementation gap on anything. But honestly, look, it's hard. Yeah, man, monetize your hobby and get paid to be a fucking gardener. I don't know. I don't know. And someone's probably going to tell me, well, shut up, James. That's hard, too. You've got to stick that trowel in awful deep. Yeah, and you know what? They're probably right. Look, we we don't have the reason that we have complicated problems now is because they have risen in con, in like along a constant continuum with what's possible. Everything exists with regards to the interface we have to interfere with it in the first place. Yeah? And here's something else. Like classical biologists from the 50s or something like that, you give one of those motherfuckers a a, a GCMS machine that works digitally, a a 96 well-plate automatic patch clamper, the ability to fucking crisp his stuff. You really think those people can come back from the dead and kick your ass at finding out shit about the world? (laughs) (laughs) They just might. They just might, motherfucker. Before we finish up, I don't even know what I'm upset about now. I, I want to. This, s- this is 
has been a very unfocused episode, and I think it's your fault. No, I, I, this this is very timely that you said that because I want to circle back to one thing that you said right at the start, which was this right. disconnect between industry and academia where in industry you have this singular focus within your organization yet with okay. acad- yeah yet, yet with academia we don't have this despite the fact that having a singular focus would obviously get more stuff done why is there this massive disconnect between the two um, because generally you scale a company through being able to at the beginning do one thing particularly well and the advice that you always get and the experience that you always have is people trying to deviate you from the plan that you have the best available evidence will work. And because an academic department is made up of a constellation of different people with different needs who want to do different shit in different ways. Yeah? I'm talking more at an individual or like a lab level where if you're within a lab level, then there at least should be some sort of some sort of way or a, some sort of focus. collective focus? Yeah. Well, I, I think I think in good labs, Dan, there, there are. Um, but also a lot of people who've risen to a, a certain level of uh, academic managerialism are shit with people and shit with managing organizations. Some of them are shit people too. Dan, focus is hard everywhere. Everyone offers you glittering opportunities to kill yourself. Um, it's, it, it happens. It happens all the time, everywhere. You get involved in something, you don't think it'll take very long. It takes longer than you expect. You have other responsibilities, et cetera, et cetera. It's an an inevitable consequence of managerialism. It's very easy for six people to communicate well. It starts to break down at sort of like 30 to 60, where you end up with the people who are entirely at cross purposes. And in the end, you, you... uh, a lot of the work that you do consists entirely of doing work to make sure that the other work is sufficiently communicated. Like a lot of work in a larger organization is meta work. Um, and, you know, if uh, academic administrators had to say pretty much all that would happen. <laughs> That's it. That's all you do. <laughs> but, but, you know, but they, 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 you, can't, you can't have no sympathy for them. They have, they have, they have, Local procedures they need to follow within the university. They have sure. governmental and other uh, things, the strictures that need to be paid attention to. This is, look, you could, some people's whole careers are flights from managerialism. That's how much they hate it. There's plenty of people who've only ever worked within small organizations. Because they got one office job one time to do something complicated for a lot of money, and they fucking hated it so much they left and joined a startup with six people in it. There's plenty of people like that who just like the idea of doing this, this kind of perpetual glacial, the march of progress, and progress has got osteoarthritis in both fucking knees. Yeah, that drives people, that drives some people to distraction so much they refuse to work for classes of organizations defined by their ability to provide annoyance. I get that. Uh, you have to be very good at what you do yeah. to be able to get away with that. Um, it's not, I mean, that's obviously, that's a, that's, that's definitely, I mean, people love talking about privilege. That's a fucking privilege. Yeah, um, definitely. To be able to just go, I don't want anything to do with that class of organization. Like, I can never make a decision like that and then stick to it. Um, that's a, that's, that's a, like, a skills in demand, fuck you money kind of position. Yeah, yeah. So some lucky bastard out there, whoever she is. Uh, I envy your life, hypothetical woman I just made up in my head. We're going to wrap up for this episode. Thanks for listening. Our last episode on Clubhouse has was one of our most downloaded for, for, for quite a while, James. Very- Why? 
The, the recording that was extremely complicated and annoying. It, um, it was, was it complicated. Was it particularly good or something? I think people, we got some feedback. People liked the, the audience interaction. We had three. three I people. love the audience interaction. I question our ability to record it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think we'll be, we will be better at doing that next time now that we know. We, we, yeah, yeah, we have, we have strike the first time. Of course, we happen to try and record the first. Look, if there, was, if there was a proper way to organize this shit, if there was just one platform that we could all agree on, as every platform tries to do exactly the same thing as every other platform all the time. Uh, and having used Clubhouse a little bit more, I'd like to listen in on other people's a little bit more than I like speaking in them sometimes. Mm. Um, I get plenty of speaking done in the rest of my fucking life. I have to say that the app is is very bad. It is a bad application. It is poorly designed. It is difficult to navigate. It has many intensely annoying features um, and has the still the remarkable kind of I mean, I presume they're working on an Android version, but why the fuck did you release something popular that's Apple only? Yeah. Like, how was that ever part of your release plan? Well, we do people all the time. I get friends like, hey, it's just the thing. We should hang out and talk on the thing. And I saw this funny club, and we could we could uh, we could have a chat and as cool people talking about cool shit. And I can't do it because I've got a Pixel Three. Um, although. A Russian guy told me the other day that there is actually a Russian language version where they've already hacked it and ported it out to something else. <laughs> <laughs> trust the Russian man. Trust, trust the Russians. But look, you know, Twitter. I love, I love, I love that shit. I love that fucking mindset. I said that idea that there's, there's some guy called Yevgeny in a room who's already Baller cracked man. that motherfucker open and make it. It is, that is, that's the best. God bless you, Yevgeny. I appreciate your mindset. But you know, Twitter's doing a clone called Spaces. Yes, I can't figure out how to get into it, how to access it. I clicked it. I clicked on it by accident the other day, and started. Someone started telling me about their fundraise while I was sitting on the toilet. <laughs> the phone just started talking to me. Oh, well, <laughs> I uh, apparently. I'm, it's- I'm glad I didn't get to talk because I think I made a a, a, a squeaky noise and started <laughs> stabbing at the phone. Um, ah, why are they? What what happened? <laughs> I think they're randomly they're randomly inviting people to. Um, so anyone can join one, but only certain people can actually start one. And I think it's interesting in the fact that one, people who use Android phones can use it. So at least it's open to, to a ton more people. And two, it's, I think it's going to be a lot more, a better way to actually reach people because you already have these networks established on Twitter. Whereas on Clubhouse, you're almost creating these new networks as well. And you're using Twitter to actually organize, hey, come join my club. Hey, come join this chat. But if you're already on Twitter, it's going to be a ton easier to actually do stuff. So hopefully, yeah, yeah, anything for a quiet life, man. It would be it would be nice to be able to do that. And I said, I love, I love. You, I've said this a fucking hundred times on this podcast. My favorite thing is listener emails. I love it when we have recorded questions and talking to people. It's also, I mean. Not, not only a lot of the time is it better content, I'm sure we repeat ourselves from time to time. And I'm sure there's a lot of people who don't want to know exactly how I feel about something, even though for some reason they're unaccountably listening to me say it. But it's always new. Mm. It's yeah. always given you something to react to. You can fucking help someone. I like that. That's the thing that I like, especially when someone goes, I've got a problem. How do I navigate this situation? Like, Fuck yeah. If I can help you, I will. Yeah. So I like that. Fingers crossed, uh, spaces will come up, but we also have the option of doing, um, more live stuff where we can actually get it's.
tricky to get live video or live audio outside of Clubhouse, but we can do stuff on Twitch. We can do stuff on YouTube where people can actually listen live and comment. That is very, very doable from our end. And yeah, look, I want to try that, man. A, yeah, I, I do too, but you've got to pick a horse. It's like every time three wankers in a garage give something a cool name, I know you want to try it straight away. But, well, I mean, we're, we're going to have to – you can't ride two horses with one arm, yeah. as the Hungarians say. We Yeah, we, we can actually do simultaneously. We can, we can do Twitch and YouTube and um, and, and do that, but I, I think it would be good. Okay. Well, let's do that then. That will make everyone very happy. Let's let, Let's do that. <laughs> Thank you for, for, for listening, everyone. Um, please use the audio question option that we have on our website. If you go to our website up the top, you will see a tab which is audio question and you can send in your audio question and we'll play it on the show and we'll answer it. So, please take that. And, of course, we have our email address and we have uh, the we have, we have Twitter as well, which is where... You, you, you undersold that. Uh, you can record an audio question straight through the website just by pushing yeah. the button that's on the page. And then it hoovers it up and sends it to Dan, and then your dulcet tones are available for our mockery and blasphemy. <laughs> I mean, our, 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 our sincere ability to try and help you. Yeah, do it. Take the opportunity. Uh, we've had a few in the past, but it's there. Super easy to do, and you will hear you will hear your question uh, played on the next Everything Hurts episode. Thank you again for listening. We love all the feedback that we get over all the mediums. And we'll be back again uh, in April with our, with our next episode. This is one of those funny months with five Mondays. So we're going to be back again in April with our next episode. Well, well, well. Take care of yourselves out there. It may not sound like it, but we love you. You're about to listen to one of our bonus episodes from the archive, which is available to all of our Professor Fancy Pants patrons. In this one, which was originally released in February 2020, we talk about a reviewer who was angry that an author mentioned pre-registration in a paper abstract, the horror, which then turned into a chat about pre-registration in general and how a bad registration might be worse than no registration at all. Have you enjoyed it? Welcome to Everything Hurts bonus episode for February 2020. James, I just want to jump straight into it and I'm going to read out um, a tweet that um, that I saw a few hours oh, ago. Oh, shitting and, heck. Uh, Here we go. This yeah, was, he uh, said he was going to do this and now he's doing it. So Now I'm doing it. Where does that it. leave me and my feelings? Um, all right. That's for, uh, that's for the second half of the bonus all episode. All right, Captain Funny Pants. What's on so, your special little mind? This was a tweet from uh, Julian Quant. And um, Julian has is said- Is that a play on quantitative or is that the gentleman's name? I Quant. believe that's a gentleman's surname by the looks of it. Quant, wow. it, the way that it's spelt Q-U-A-N-D-T. Oh, um, right. I thought there was some serious nominative determinism shit going on. You know? <laughs> maybe, maybe it is. But okay, so um, Julian has said, uh, I just received this as part of a review on a paper that I was a co-author on, mm. and I'm going to read a screenshot of this, and this is from the review, from the reviewer, and the reviewer writes, as a footnote, I must add that at various points in the paper, including twice, inappropriately in the abstract, the authors refer to the fact that the research was pre-registered. Mm. This is done 
as though to convey that this confers extra credibility on the design. It does not and never does. Instead, the present incomplete factorial design illustrates the real true truth about pre-registration. The only thing that it achieves for certain is to pile another layer of bureaucracy and paperwork on researchers and students who are already struggling to get some research done in the face of the demands of IRBs, conflicts of interest forms, and on and on and on and on and on the review goes. Okay, so pre-registration confers no value whatsoever. It's being used as a social signal to essentially boost the perceived inherent accuracy of work. That was the accusation of the um, reviewer, yes. But it does nothing whatsoever. Except for add uh, layers of bureaucracy and to so make students just, work. Okay. So, presumably this person gets as annoyed as all the other layers of bureaucracy. I mean, they said something there about IRBs. Often we have ethical approval required to have someone sit in a room and look at coloured squares, shit like that. Yeah, but I don't understand how pre-registration adds more layers of IRB. <laughs> your, your research needs it, to get it passed doesn't. by IRB. What they're, what they're saying, look, this is... It doesn't, it doesn't add anything at all. I mean, it adds, it adds a small... There's a small component. If you know how something needs to be structured, I mean, presumably you know how something needs to be done before you do it, unless you have some kind of severe kind of- You're a psycho. Yeah, well, <sighs> presumably what they're trying to say, let's be charitable for a minute and then okay. let's allow okay. ourselves the luxury of getting upset. Presumably what they're trying to say is no amount of pre-registration will save you from a poorly specified model, a bad design, a series of decisions that invalidate the eventual outcomes. Presumably, that's what they mean. That and, what I- and what they're taking exception to is the idea that in the absence of doing that, you would spend your time presumably not reading the work of the reviewer or their textbook or their whatever else, right? And the problem is that there's a, a, a split between how one, uh, you know, it's basically saying, I, 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 I'm telling you how to use your time. Well, now I'm curious, basically. Has this ever happened to, I mean, I know this opinion exists. I've seen it before in some format. It seems to be some combination of a misunderstanding, a straw man, uh, some uncharitable readings. And, also, the inherent recognition of the fact that anything that's brought in as a professional procedure is capable of being bastardized, misused, abused, and generally turned on its head when there isn't any kind of interest or oversight in that not happening. It's very easy to do bullshit pre-registration. It may even be easier to make something bad look good with the simple prediction Hey, I said I was going to do the bad thing, and then it turned out exactly how the fuck I wanted. So, has this ever happened to you? What an, an accusation that what telling me that I shouldn't be mentioning pre-registration or that I'm doing uh, something for the wrong reasons? Well, basically, anything like this. Have you been accused of boosting? Has someone said that's completely pointless? Why would you say that? I mean, this looks like 
mentioning it in the first place has incurred a loss of trust for this guy. Um, I don't. I think maybe once or twice I've had the accusation, indirect accusation of you are only talking about this because it's the cool thing. That's what everyone's talking about now. Nothing direct. But one thing I do want to come back to is- But that's not an argument. What do you mean? Look, you're only talking about it because it's the cool thing. Everything that people take up in the first place starts off as the cool thing. Yeah, exactly. Where do they think ideas come from? Like, (laughs) is everyone born 55 doing a process that was set in stone by Moses? Go fuck yourself. It, it's mental. Right? But I mean, wh- yes, you can say it has undue attention with the other guy. Oh, you're just bandwagon jumping is not a statement on the quality of the fucking bandwagon. And but look, I do want to say that I do I do actually agree with that. Um you saying pre-registration done poorly is not going to improve research design. Um people either nefariously or without even thinking can do a poor pre-registration, make it very broad, going our treatment is going to um, our treatment is going to improve depression and do it do it just like that. P- people can do that. Mm. People can say that. You can do that on clinicaltrials.gov or on OSF and you can post a timestamp pre-registration and you could actually say, either in good faith or in bad faith, we pre-registered this. I would argue that paper is actually worse than if they didn't do that at all because now it's been given a veer of respectability because they've said in the paper a veneer sorry a veneer ah yes a veneer of respectability because they've said this is pre-registered now the problem is is when people don't actually follow up on the pre-registration and under most circumstances um there is unless you have a very motivated editor or reviewer they're not actually going to match the pre-registration with um, with what's actually written in the paper. and well, That's that- already the problem with clinical trials. That's why we had the whole episode with Henry. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so, done poorly, then I can see that, that it's not going to magically improve research design. Um, but to say that it has no value whatsoever, um, that, yeah. That requiring a method section is is something that, like, all, everything, everything can be misused. I like to think of a lot of these structural changes that are possible as something that gives you the opportunity to display legitimate legitimacy when it's present. If you have done everything right and you have been careful, and presumably you have even had a good idea of what to investigate about the world, you have the facility now to ask for Under circumstances that we've all sort of agreed on, you have the ability to ask for extra trust and credibility. Now, ask for is the important part of the previous sentence. Conferring it because you did it is bullshit. Mm. It's the ability to ask for increased trust. So, I would sincerely hope that when these things are reviewed, because people are saying, trust me, I've got this thing, that that is reviewed in terms of being understood as a crucial element of the document. Yeah? It's like, say the police are making a case against a a money launderer or something like that. 
and they've got all the financial documents and it looks pretty good and maybe there's an explanation, something, something, something. And then they say, oh, we've also got phone calls of him talking to his banker in the Cayman Islands and saying dodgy shit like um, buy Billy Elish and turn her into manure, you know, spend all that money on a yacht. I know it belongs to Mrs. Phillips. That's not important right now. But you'd never prosecute that case and say, we also have audio recordings and then not have to show whatever the fuck they were. Mm. When it turns up to a, a like any legal procedure like that, one of, the, one of the strongest things you have in the legal domain, one of the strongest principles is the fact that people get to see shit before the trial. You don't get to go surprise. Surprise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You, 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 you have to provide the information that you're going to use to other people. You can't keep it in escrow, in secret, and then spring it on them. It's the idea. That, and, of course, because when things go to trial, it's incredibly uncommon for a normal court case. The vast majority of things don't. When it does, the idea that everything can be picked through and that is, is tested becomes really important. Mm. So, look, maybe maybe in general, maybe there's an overreaction to some of this now. Maybe one of the things that will happen in a while is that people who know that they're trustworthy, who have the right kind of reputation, don't fucking bother pre-registering something the first time. And then they do it just the regular way of exploring something. And when they, they, they want to really commit, maybe they go the whole way and go straight to, here's a registered report with as much control as humanly possible. We're really interesting in pre-specifying like, what this effect's actually like. Because the idea of a disconnected registration of what you're going to do, that no one's going to check, right? I don't think anyone's expecting that not to be like clinicaltrials.gov. Because that literally is that now. And in general, a funded RCT has more writing on it than your bullshit study about how 48 undergraduates feel about the toenail fungus. More money, more people, definitely more external relevance when it comes to the immediate health of other people. Mm. Right? The evidence is, you know, it's... I mean, I have different intellectual traditions, but one has more immediate ability to directly affect the lives of other people in ways that could either make them not dead or make them dead or something in between that is of similar seriousness. Much more writing on it. So, if we're incapable of checking whether or not all the fucking RCTs are appropriately organized- the idea that everyone's going to go into your fucking nested factorial design and try and figure out whether or not everything ran in the first place, especially when everyone can't get reviewers in the first instance right now to review the fucking papers that they've got. There's not going to be some sudden increase in diligence where everyone's going to do this matching up for you. Look, if you're capable of doing it, I mean, presumably, this is the other thing as as well, is that there should be hallmarks in a paper like this. This fellow, what was his name? Want? Bunt? He- Clark Kent? Clark Kent. Uh, for- Julian oh, Quant. Julian Quant. Quant. I quite like that name, Quant. Quant. Um, presumably, if he's complaining about this on the internet, then he's someone who knows- Probably you, as you've seen it. 
And he's within a community of people who've done this because he takes it seriously. Now, you might think, well, the reviewer didn't know that, and they might think he was a mendacious little shit. However, I have seen things that were pre-registered shittily, and I've seen things that were pre-registered properly. There obviously are heuristic hallmarks within the paper of how seriously you're taking the evidence that you put in front of other people. Yeah? And I'm going to make the presumption that someone from a research tradition that you'd come across in the first place probably is displaying most or all of those. It's not some desperate venal plea to be taken more seriously because it provides some kind of additive advantage. Mm. It's a way of credibly establishing credibility. I would argue the researcher who has been forced to pre-register kicking and screaming is going to have the worst pre-registration than someone who's within within the tradition. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Yeah, almost certainly. People who are like, oh, my my, uh, my institution has made me do this. My funder has made me do this rather than the person. Like, if oh, you, they're they're going to do it four hours before it was due. Or, or do it- have uh, that, that step, like that old cartoon, like then a miracle happens and, you know. That was like the paper that um that, that Stu Murray did um, or that, that, uh, that I actually co-authored, which is looking at um, anorexia nervosa. And uh, so many registrations were actually done post hoc. <laughs> Which was either- oh clinical clinical trial registration yeah like this is like anorexia eating, eating, and that, eating that's disorder serious research that's serious it, eating disorder research is as far as I can tell bad um I don't want to cast aspersions on why because we don't really have the time <laughs> um, that's the impression that's the impression that I get cleaning house with a number of people, which is good. A lot of people are actually starting to care about this. But there was a ton of trials. We fucking should. It's important. It's very important. But I, I was very surprised. I think we found uh, uh, a 20%, a crazy high amount of trials, which were um, which were pre-registered, pre-registered or were registered after the fact, which is essentially uh. useless. How do these platforms even allow the facility to do this? I don't, I don't understand. Under what circumstances is it useful to have a, this is what we would have done if we pre-registered it. And what I want to see is, are there any post hoc pre-registrations which actually disagree with the results? (laughs) (laughs) Now, Dan, there's being a regular kind of moron. And then there's being like a uber moron, (laughs) ultra moron. Yeah, if anyone's got one of those, we should get yeah. This is this is a special patrons only challenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you can find someone who's retrospectively posted a pre-registration and then it disagrees with their results, we will send you a prize. We'll send you a prize. <laughs> but good luck with that because I mean, if that's the case, uh, I don't think people are going to work because they're too stupid to tie their shoes in the morning. <laughs> so, I don't think they made it to the lab to be able to write the paper, to be quite honest. I don't think that would, that would exist. And uh, there's, there's, there's let's, two- yeah. let's, let's knock it off, man. Yeah. Um, Everything's killing me here. Wait. Nope. That's the name. That is, that is the name. Uh, Go on with you. Do your little sign out. Thanks. Uh, Do a little dance. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening. Make a little love. Thank you, patrons. Remember that get you get uh, you get a discount on the old merch. We're loving seeing people who've been posting in photos. James, we had a, a T-shirt given as a Valentine's Day gift. 
Isn't that oh, amazing? Oh man, that warms my heart. That does man. that, that does that does warm my heart. And yeah, we're, we're seeing people posting pictures, um, which, which which is great. So thanks for supporting the show, and uh, and thanks for being our patrons. We'll be back again in an, in a month's time with more bonus hurts. See you then. Yay! Be good.